welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I'm coming at you from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me today. Excited to be here. We do have a great show lined up. First, we're going to start off with a client story about a dog named Betty. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Dog Psychology 101, how dogs learn and some of the details that go along with that. Our guest spot today will be Kelly Hain from the Care Foundation, very good friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of amazing animals they have over there and more. And we have our Breed of the Week segment, Q&A, and it's going to be an awesome show. Now, don't forget, if you like what you hear, click that subscribe button. You can also visit the website, www.speakadogcast.com. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. Hope you enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's a client success story. But before we talk about that, let's first talk a little bit about aggression. Now, aggression is one of those terms that gets thrown around quite a bit, but I think maybe it's a little bit misunderstood and misused. Most aggression that we come across with dogs is what we call fear-based or uh, possessive aggression tendencies. When I talk about a true aggression, I would have to say that less than 1% of dogs out there, thankfully, are truly aggressive. True aggression means non-discriminatory. There's no provocation. There's no trigger. The dog will just come at you without anything. And, and, you know, I've really only experienced a handful of dogs that are like that in, in the 10 years I've been doing this. Like I said, most aggression tends to be possessive. You know, dogs possessive over food or treats or maybe possessive over inanimate objects, toys, or sometimes even they get possessive over people. Then, of course, there's fear-based aggression where there's been some form of traumatizing experience that, uh, sort of similar to a human being, we go through a traumatizing experience and it can create us to maybe put up walls or be defensive. And that's sort of what goes on with a dog. We just, we see that manifest in different ways. So majority of dogs out there are not truly aggressive. And uh, this dog I'm going to tell you about today, her name is Betty. And Betty was a mix, probably about a 60, 70 pound dog, good sized dog. And Betty had some sort of traumatizing experience early in her life. And the owner adopted her and it continued for years. Now, when I got a phone call for Betty, it was from a very nice woman. And she told me the story, you know, that they had Betty for a couple years and now the couple was divorced. She was no longer living in the house with the dog, but her and her ex-husband were on good terms and, and she definitely was still interacting with the dog. And, you know, it was becoming such a problem because the husband was a workaholic. The guy just worked, 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 worked. And he needed people to be able to come to the house, take care of the dogs and among other things. And part of the problem was Betty Betty did not want to let people walk in the front door. She only liked uh, her owners, and that was it. She didn't like anybody else. She didn't trust anybody else is the way I would see it. And she was not good with other people or other dogs. Now, there was another dog living in the house with her. It was a German Shepherd, and that dog got along with Betty just fine. It was the only dog Betty could be around. Now, interesting side note is I oftentimes see in a two-dog household where I have a dog and I get a phone call for aggression or aggressive tendencies or what have you, and there's a second dog in the household, it is not, I would say more often than not, that second dog turns out to be more timid than confident, right? So we have an overcompensating dog and we have an undercompensating dog hitting two opposite ends of the spectrum. And what that tells me, and it very clearly shows it, is that I have two dogs very out of balance, And if they both were to be in that aggressive side, right, we'd have some much larger problems. And even though it's unbalanced in the sense that each dog is at the opposite end of the spectrum, it still creates balance to create some form of of cohesion between the two dogs, which is amazing how those things kind of work themselves out. I had another dog recently I worked with with a boot camp um, this dog was was tra- had a traumatizing experience, and wouldn't you know it, uh, definitely aggressive, kind of similar tendencies, and a second dog in the household, same thing, more timid, right? One one on one end of the spectrum, the other one on the opposite. So it's it's really interesting how the psychology of that works out. So anyway, getting back to Betty, I showed up for the consultation, and we decided to try to take Betty outside for a walk because she was not very happy that I was inside the house. 
Um, I remember taking the leash and trying to work with her and it, it was just, it was, you know, it was a little, sometimes can be a little difficult in an enclosed environment. So I suggested we go for a walk. We went outside and I actually let the owner take Betty for a walk because Betty did not want to let me get near the owner. <laughs> and we're walking and we're trying to work through it. We're discussing some things and we'd stop and we'd stand there for a couple minutes and chat and Betty would end up relaxing and lying down. And then I would do something as so much as shuffle my foot and Betty would come full throttle right at me and try to attack me. Um, just something as simple as that movement would trigger Betty. She was very, very hot <laughs> on her triggers, if you will. She slept with one eye open at all times. So we decided the best route for Betty would be to do a boot camp. Betty really needed rehabilitation. Again, this is not a training kind of thing. This is a mental rehabilitation uh, case. So the best scenario and the best way to successfully take Betty was to be able to put a muzzle on her. So I had the owner muzzle her before I came over. And then once she we had her safely muzzled, took the leash and, you know, got her in the car and Betty was absolutely terrified of me. And she knew, I mean, it was a, it was a very smart dog and she knew she had that muzzle on and she knew she couldn't do anything to me. So you just see her whole body language just shut down. And really cool because we actually were able to get video of, of the initial... Um, transfer of taking her from the owner and and it's 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 neat to be able to see the progress of that start with her and where we started and and where we were able to end so I took Betty home and I did an intro to my pack and didn't go terrible didn't go great uh, she did try to lash out a couple times which is not abnormal um, luckily my dogs are relatively used to that and know what to do they look to me for guidance in those moments and tend not to react back at the other dogs and it, it doesn't escalate the situation with them reacting like that so it took five days if I remember correctly I believe it was about five days before I felt safe enough to get the muzzle off of Betty now Betty could still drink and even eat wearing this muzzle but I, if she didn't want to eat, um, that's another thing. And another topic we'll talk about for another day. But dogs, when they're very anxious, oftentimes will refuse food, even when presented multiple times throughout the day. And Betty refused food the first few days. And it took about five days for me to feel comfortable to be able to take that muzzle off. I mean, take it off, let alone leave it off and be around my dogs. But after those first couple days and, and getting the muzzle off and getting her a little more accustomed to my pack and learning how, having her learn how to go for the pack walk, and she started to come along. It definitely took some time. Betty was eight years old when we started her training process, so it's a little harder for us to undo some of that behavior. It takes a little longer. So I worked with Betty for about a month, and the first month went pretty, pretty well, but we were still not tipping the scale like we needed to. And I knew Betty would need to spend at least a month with me with how severe her, her traumatizing experiences clearly were and how severe her behavior was. Now, it was a unique situation because her owner, and I mean, not that everybody doesn't love their dog, but her owner loved loves Betty very, very much. But like I said, the guy's a workaholic. He's, he's never home. He works a lot. But he was willing to do whatever it took whatever we needed to do to help Betty. And that was really, really cool that he was willing to dedicate himself and dedicate what needed to be done. And so Betty ended up spending quite a bit more time with me. And she ended up transitioning into my pack. Now, the first month, Betty really didn't want much to do with me. Uh, she sort of avoided me a lot, which which was okay. To me, that's better than um, trying to take my head off, Right. We were at one extreme, she kind of goes to the other extreme. We'll, we'll play this little ping pong game back and forth until we can bounce back and forth to find the middle ground. Okay, She goes to the extreme of aggression, then to the extreme of avoiding me. And before you know it, after about a month, she started warming up to me. First month, Betty would go right into her crate without a problem. Second month, all of a sudden, Betty loves me and wants to be with me. Too much. Now she doesn't want to be in her crate. So we had to we had to find all these little tweaks. And this is the thing about training, and especially with a dog with, with severe aggression, well, uh, excuse me, tendencies, uh, aggression tendencies and, and, and severe anxiety and everything that Betty had. The point I want to make is that it's a process. It was a process to get Betty to where she needed to be. It was a lot of taking down barriers, a lot of rebuilding confidence, 
a lot of we tackled one problem and then it would might slowly evolve into another. That's kind of what training is sometimes. It doesn't always go as black and white as you want it to, and especially with these cases um, where there's where there's that trauma added to it, that variable. Things don't always go as smoothly as you want. Now again, luckily, Betty spent about five months with me, which is a long time. It was very unusual. But man, I wish every dog with with those kind of issues could spend five months with me because the progress we made was a diff- was was night and day. I mean, Betty was a completely different dog from where we started with her. She could actually be around other dogs in those five months. I mean, I had other dogs coming in for boot camps, boarding, doggy day camps. And throughout that time, she consistently did well and learned how to how to be a dog, how to be a healthy dog. And it really was an awesome experience for her and for myself. And once I returned her home to her owner, it 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 really is, you know, I, I'm sitting here, I get chills a little bit because, I mean, the owner, and I'm even going to tear up a little bit. The owner started, I mean, the owner is this big guy named Mike. I mean, he must be like six foot four, six five, big intimidating dude. And he, he, he started into tears after he saw Betty um, the new Betty after, after the progress we'd made with her. And that's just so cool. And that's why I love what I do is being able to make, make those kind of differences in not only the dog's life, but the human's life. And it's really enriching and and really neat. So yeah, Betty was one of those unique cases and one that always will stick out and remain in my memory. And I loved working with Betty very much. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and more. You can find more information by checking out our website at www.thenatureoftraining.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. We're located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Speak, a dog cast, is Dog Psychology 101. Now this is an intro to terminology and concepts relating to how dogs learn and understand the world around them. At times this might be a little bit dry, but this information is the core foundation of being able to train your dog. While I have tried to refine these definitions in terms for ease of understanding and use with dogs, these concepts are based on the scientific behavioral modification theory and are proven consistently and repetitively not only with animals, but people as well. The first thing we want to understand about dogs is they have a one-track mind. They can literally only focus on one thing at a time, so it is very important that I not only know where that focus is, but I also have the ability to manipulate and guide and direct it. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is one of our definitions, and it's one of the terms that most people, I think, dread, and that is the dreaded term punishment. Ooh. <laughs> punishment has become one of my favorite terms because it is very misunderstood. Okay? Now, punishment by definition is anything an animal works to avoid. Okay, anything an animal works to avoid. Now, the fancy way of saying punishment, the technical way of saying punishment is aversive. It's an aversive. So you might hear me interchange the terms punishment and aversive, but they both mean the same thing. Now, I like to think of aversive to go along with the definition. Anything an animal works to avoid, aversive, avoid. Now, punishment, aversives, they don't have to be anything physical. They don't have to be anything physical at all. It's anything an animal works to avoid. So I give the concept, uh, the easy way to understand this is human beings. If I ask you to complete a list of tasks, and after you complete those lists, that list, I will give you a piece of chocolate cake. 
Well, I don't know about you guys, but I love chocolate cake. So I'd probably complete that list as quickly as I can to get that chocolate cake. Now, in this concept, not or in this situation, not getting the chocolate cake would be the form of punishment, right? Right? So not getting a treat can be a form of punishment. Or how about a little kid? When a little kid tantrums, what do we do? We send them to their room. That's a form of punishment. Now, there is a physical barrier to that. The, the, the actual containment of the room is a physical barrier. So that actually is a physical punishment, if you will. But the point I'm trying to make here is there are many different types of punishment. When you drive down the road, if you go 100 miles an hour and a speed limit uh, it's only 45, you're going to get hauled off to jail, right? So the punishment, the aversive, is going to jail. You work to avoid getting a ticket or going to jail. So simply put, punishment is anything an animal works to avoid. Okay. Now, punishment also, simply put, is going to decrease behavior, right? We apply punishments all around us in our lives daily in order to decrease undesired behaviors, such as speeding, uh, such as stealing, such as all these different things we have laws for. There are punishments or consequences or aversives attached to these things in order to decrease undesired behavior. Now, it's no different when we work with animals. I need to be able to punish any undesired behavior in order to get that behavior to decrease. However, what about reinforcement? What about behaviors we like? What about increasing desired behaviors? Well, that's where the term reinforcement comes in. So simply put, punishment is going to decrease behavior. Reinforcement is going to increase behavior. So general rule of thumb, I want to punish any undesired behaviors in a dog, and I want to reward or reinforce any desired behaviors in a dog, any animal I'm working with. So reinforcement. Everybody has heard of two different types of reinforcement. What they don't realize is they have not heard the correct definition for them. So let's talk about positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Now, the first thing we have to do when we talk about positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, I need you to take anything you think you know about it and throw it out the door. Anything at all you think you know about positive and negative reinforcement, and I need you to just get rid of that info. We're going to start fresh. We're talking about science. We're talking about psychology. So there's no feelings or emotions. Therefore, positive and negative don't mean good and bad. It's much drier than that. Positive in the science world means, well, you already know the answer, addition. So what does that mean? What does negative mean then? Subtraction or removal. So the definition of positive reinforcement is the addition of a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior. So then, obviously, the definition of negative reinforcement is the removal of a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior. Wait, David, did you just say negative and increase? Yes, I did. <laughs> negative reinforcement, I'll repeat that. Negative reinforcement is the removal of a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior. David, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. All right, let's see if we can bring it together now. Here's the example I like to give. Go back to the little kid uh, throwing a tantrum, right? We've all been little kids, so we can relate to it. <laughs> kid throws a tantrum. We say, go to your room. And now the kid's going, ah, screaming, kicking, crying. They go to their room. They're still, ah, screaming, kicking, crying. What do I want the kid to do? Well, I want the kid to stop throwing the tantrum, right? But because they are throwing a tantrum, I have to punish that behavior. I need that behavior to decrease. Therefore, I need to apply a punishment. The punishment is the room. Okay, so we've got that so far. Now, the punishment works. The child stops tantruming, and all of a sudden it gets quiet in that room. So what do I want to do? I want to tell the kid that I like that behavior. I want to increase that desired behavior of not tantruming. In order to do that, I have to let the kid out of the room, right? So I'm actually removing the physical punishment by letting them out of their room. And this is, this is the little, this is a tricky part here, so stay with me. I'm going to remove the punishment in order to 
negatively reinforce the behavior. Now, remember what I said about reinforcement. Reinforcement increases behavior. Negative does not mean bad. Negative means the removal of a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior. So the kid throws a tantrum. They're giving me an undesired behavior. I need to punish it. I send them to their room. The punishment works. The child stops tantruming. So I need to remove the punishment in order to negatively reinforce the behavior. I remove the punishment, remove a stimulus in order to increase a targeted behavior of not tantruming. Okay, so punishment tells the kid what I don't like. Removing the punishment tells them what I do like. Aha. So negative reinforcement is going to increase that behavior of not tantruming. Now, let's say I let the kid out of the room and the kid is still being awesome and fantastic. What am I going to do then? I'm going to positively reinforce the behavior by adding a stimulus of, if it was a dog, I'd say, hey, good boy. That doesn't work the same for a kid. Maybe I, hey, give them a cookie, give them some pudding. I don't know. There's all different kinds of uh, positive reinforcement we can use with a child. But suffice it to say, punishment tells them what I don't like. Removal of the punishment negatively reinforces the behavior to tell them what I like. Positive reinforcement comes after the fact in order to tell them that I want them to keep doing that. To me, positive reinforcement more means keep doing that. Keep doing that. I can't, well, you can positively reinforce undesired behavior, but I don't want to reinforce undesired behaviors. So that's the thing about reinforcement and punishment. You can positively reinforce undesired behaviors. You can negatively reinforce undesired behaviors. You can even punish desired behaviors. I've watched clients do it left and right. But that's not what we want to do. We want to punish undesired behaviors in order to decrease that behavior. Then I want to negatively reinforce the behavior in order to increase the good behavior excuse me, desired behavior. Now I'm getting really tricky. And then I want to positively reinforce the behavior to continue it and to strengthen it. So I sort of look at it as a fraction. Punishment tells them what I don't like. Negative reinforcement tells them what I do like. And positive reinforcement means keep doing that. Keep doing that. Now there's one more term we have to throw in there and that's a redirection. Okay. I always try to redirect a behavior before I go straight to a punishment. A redirection is sort of exactly what it sounds like. It's either a physical or mental means in order to regain focus. With a dog, it can be snapping my finger, calling their name. I like to use the kissy noise sometimes, right? That noise to get their attention. That's a form of redirection. I can also give them just a, hey, light tap on the side. Hey, buddy, look at me. Physical redirection. When I start teaching the walk, we rely mostly on physical redirections to start with to get a dog to, to walk with us correctly. So I try to redirect a behavior first. I, you know, I, I like to say if I do nothing but punish an animal, they're going to hate me and avoid me. And then I become the form of punishment by them avoiding me. However, the opposite end, if I give them nothing but love and coddling and affection and treats, they're going to walk all over me and control me. So it's about finding the balance between the two. I try to redirect a behavior before I go straight to a punishment, but redirections usually only get you so far. There has to be a point of some sort of consequence, some form of that animal going, hey, you know something? Uh, when I do this when I do this one behavior, I don't get anything out of it and I really don't like it. So I'm not going to do that again. You know, they have to view a consequence as a consequence and a reward as a reward. And you'd be surprised when you figure out with each individual animal, when you figure out what they view as a consequence, what they view as a reward, very quickly you can start manipulating their behavior. Now that's an important thing to touch on is the motivation. You know, I talked about chocolate cake at the beginning of this as a form of reinforcement, right? But what if you don't like chocolate cake? Well, then I can't use that as a form of reinforcement or for that matter, a form of punishing punishment by threatening to withhold it. Okay, so I can apply the same thing there with dogs. I have had dogs come into my boot camp programs where their anxiety is so severe that they won't eat. That's hierarchy of needs kicking in. 
When a dog's anxiety is so severe that they refuse food, that means that they fear for their safety. I hear this a lot with dogs who graze. And we'll, we'll talk about grazing, I think, in another segment on its own. Uh, but dogs who graze tend to be more anxious than dogs who don't. Because they're not just sitting and eating their food. This goes back to that one-track mind. If a dog can only focus on one thing at a time, and they're bent over and eating, they know they're vulnerable. Right? It's instinct kicking in. Therefore, if a dog doesn't feel safe, if a dog won't bend over and eat its whole meal and just go bah, 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 and chop it down, then they're looking over their shoulder, aren't they? They're kind of going, well, geez, I don't, I don't feel 100% safe here to just... So I have had dogs, actually I had one dog who didn't eat for six days. I'm not even kidding, six days. I offered breakfast, I offered dinner every single day, I offered treats throughout the day, and this dog would not take one speck of food from me until day seven when it got so hungry that he said, screw it, and just wolf down his food. And you know what we never had? A, never had a problem with the meeting ever again after that. It's learning how to manipulate motivation. But here's the thing. I only have three ways to motivate animals. Three. Food, affection, and sex drive. Got news for you. Can't do anything with sex drive with animals. So that leaves me food and affection. If I give away all of my affection and food for free, I now have zero ways to motivate and work with that animal. So it's very important to keep this in mind when you're training and working with your dog. You need to understand motivation. You need to understand the concepts of reinforcement and punishment. You know, when I first started training, a lot of what I did was on feel. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't explain through, oh, I'm going to redirect that, and then I'm going to positively reinforce. I I didn't understand those concepts. But once I was introduced to that, once I was introduced to understanding what in the world I was doing, it took my training to a new level. And that's why, you know, I make it my mission for my clients. You need to be able to explain what you're doing. And if you don't know what a treat is, if you can't explain what positive reinforcement is, what negative reinforcement is, what a redirection is, what punishment is, then what are you doing? Because you probably don't even know. Educate yourselves. Don't take my word for it. Go do some research. Educate yourselves on training your dog. I promise you, if you educate yourself and you learn these concepts and terminology and you learn how to apply them, you will never have trouble training your dog. It's one thing I love about my job. It's sort of like it's sort of like math. You put in one, you put in one, you're going to get two. If you understand these concepts and you know how to apply punishment and reinforcement, you can make amazing changes in dogs' lives. So educate yourself. Go out there, do some research, hire a professional. Love it. Get out there and train your dog. Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. Don't forget to click that subscribe button and check out our website, www.speakadogcast.com. Our next segment today on Speak a Dogcast, we have a very good friend of mine on, Kelly Hayne from the Care Foundation. Now, the Care Foundation is an amazing exotic animal rescue located in Apopka, Florida. Very, very cool place. All kinds of different animals. And uh, we're going to talk and hear a little more about that today. So, hey, Kelly, how are you doing today? I am great. How are you, David? Doing excellent. Doing great. So uh, tell us a little more about CARE. Uh, So CARE is exactly what you said. It's an exotic animal rescue, but we also house uh, native Florida wildlife that were deemed non-releasable. We right now have over 200 animals, um, basically animals from every continent except Antarctica. Uh, no penguins or polar bears, which is probably good since we're in Florida. Um, but yeah, we're, we're designed to house animals that were either previously owned pets or non-releasable native animals that were brought in um, for various different reasons. And um, we provide them a permanent home um, so that they don't have to worry about life. Um, they may have been abused, neglected, uh, dumped on the side of the road. Sometimes the stories are a bit hard to hear, um, but the goal is, of course, to give them that happy, healthy lifestyle from here on out. And then, of course, our mission is obviously to uh, educate people on why a lot of these animals don't make great pets. And, of course, you know, that conservation awareness. Uh, We do have quite a few endangered species on our property as well. So we do like to educate people about all of those, too. Nice. What are a couple of the uh, endangered species you guys have now? Um, so we definitely have the, some of the big cats. Uh, we've got some Florida panthers or we have, we have one right now. We have had some of the past uh, tigers, um, 
the big cats are definitely a big one. We've got lemurs. Our ringtail lemurs are an endangered species. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the, the more exotic ones. Uh, some of the reptiles we have, yeah. um, we've got yeah. crocodilian, alligators, even some of the tropical birds. Um, but yeah, mainly the big cats is one that's really a big draw for us. And especially being uh, Florida, uh, the, the panther and, um, and some of those guys are really big for us for education, seeing as they are a local animal that we really like to tell people about. Definitely. We hear a lot about uh, Florida panthers down here in South Florida. People swear they see them, I think, more often than they do. But hey, maybe it's a good thing they are starting to see them more. So uh, very cool. Yeah. So uh, what's, uh, what's your position title at the CARE Foundation? So I am the assistant director now. I've been there for 11 years. I did start as a volunteer way back when. And as I spend more and more time there, uh, she was just looking for somebody to help her run the place. And yours truly uh, was happy to oblige. And now that is my full-time job. So not only do I do all the dirty work, just like all the volunteers do, but I help to uh, run the events. I go off property and do some educational uh, displays and presentations as well as on property tours and help her to do a lot of the fundraising as well as social media and just um, anything that she needs. Um, just kind of her right man, right hand man or woman. And uh, you're, saying, you're saying she, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about Kristen? Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> she, uh, boss lady, yeah. uh, boss lady, uh, Kristen Burford. She is the, uh, the, uh, creator, founder, uh, director, El Presidente, uh, <laughs> mother of all things, we like to call her. She is the woman behind everything. She started it uh, single-handedly, um, and she, even now, she is the person who owns everything. She has all the licensing. Um, she has had a lot of help over the years with uh, volunteers and other people, but um, yeah, Kristen is possibly one of my biggest heroes that uh, she has been able to do all of this in the face of adversity even. Uh, she's been in the, the animal business for 30 plus years and to be able to create a place like this, that's very, very difficult to do, um, yes. and, and successfully be able yeah. to do it. So absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I was actually lucky enough. I got to volunteer at the care foundation for a couple of years and it was, uh, it was a really cool experience. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, as Kelly talked about, there's a lot of different animals on property, a wide variety of species and, you know, I found myself loving Katrina quite a bit, uh, especially when she was a young cub. And uh, Katrina is one of the tigers on property. And you know, what uh, what's your favorite animal? Who who is your favorite animal on property? If you can oh, pick one. Oh, Dave, don't ask me that. <laughs> you knew I was going to. So yeah. I know it's a good thing they they can't hear me right now because they get really jealous. <laughs> yeah, well, I have um, to. Ask. I know. I mean, okay. So I I really don't have one 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 favorite. I have a couple favorites. Okay. I mean, obviously my. I guess my true favorite would be Rufio, our African serval. And, that's and you I was, know that. Yeah, because, that was going to be my guess. <laughs> you know that from us working in other facilities as well, that, you know, he is, uh, he's a, a small spotted cat from Africa. Um, and I raised him since he was five weeks old. So he did come with me from another production facility. So we have a very long history. I am literally mom to him. So he, I do have a very special place in my heart for him. How old, is, how old is he now? Very happy to have him. Uh, he's uh, seven. Seven. I was gonna say. Oh, I think that's crazy. He just turned seven uh, this past week. <laughs> that's awesome. If I'm correct, sometimes it, it, having so many animals with ages, <laughs> it's, it's either six or seven. It might be six. Yeah. Um, but Still yeah, crazy six or seven. Yeah, it's old. that old. Wow. I know. I know. But it's it's really awesome to be able to have continued to raise him and know that he's with me and not ending up somewhere that he shouldn't have been. Definitely. Um, so that's the number one. Um, also my two others, definitely Amos or spider monkey. Um, he just, that, that old man who yep. captures everybody's heart, um, coming from such a, you know, a kind of a sad story, his previous owners, but now he literally lives the life of luxury that he does. Um, and, uh, and then also chimera. Um, I don't know if you did, if you've seen, Seen All pictures, the yeah. yeah. Mostly, uh, with yeah. you guys, I think I uh, got them shortly after. Right, shortly got got him shortly after we moved down here. So, yeah. So he's kind of right now the unicorn and a bit of the celebrity for us, mainly because of what he is, uh, but also because of his personality and the fact that he is just such an incredible animal. He is the only Laliger, as far as we know, in Florida. Um, so he is in that way. A lot of people come from all over to see him, but also he's a great education piece being that he's, um, a hybrid, he's not natural in the wild. And, um, 
he is potentially, we don't have any proof um, that he may be actually one of Joe Exotic's cats from that crazy docuseries. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what you, I've never heard of that. What are you talking about? No, I'm kidding, kidding. I know, right? <laughs> Um, We did obviously did not uh, get directly from uh, that guy, but uh, the people that we took him in from won't seem to give us a straight answer as to where he came from. So, and it's a big coincidence that his birthday is the same day as four cubs that were born at Joe Exotic's place. That is coincidental, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) One of my favorites too. Again, big relationship. He's an amazing animal with a big personality and um, a lot of education we can use uh, with him Definitely. surrounding everything. Awesome. For sure. awesome. Cool. So uh, what are um, what's some fun projects you guys have going on around property right now? Any building, any new cool enclosures or anything like that? Yeah. So the big guy, the 700 pound baby I was just talking about, <laughs> even though he just turned three, um, he has outgrown the uh, that nighttime area he has. Um, up there because he he has already grown almost twice the size of what we were told he would grow. Where'd you so guys? Uh, are, where'd you guys have him at? Uh, he's in where Lou, uh, Sweet Lou, sure used to be. In, yeah, Lou's okay. Yeah, and so you know that area was was built for at max a five hundred pound lion, yeah. and yeah. so since he's already seven hundred pounds and he stands on all fours at about four feet tall. Um, and when he stands up on two on his, on his back feet and stretches, he stands at about eight to nine feet. Yeah, right he's got to be easily eight or nine feet. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that, that enclosure is only at eight feet high. So yeah. he stretches taller than that. <laughs> uh, so we are currently building him this massive, I think it's either 15 or 18 feet tall using telephone poles. Like we have, you know, graduated to this construction style. Um, with a, a six foot tall den box. I mean, it's, it's really cool. So that's going to be reinforced and everything. Um, that's, we're upgrading him to that so he can have all kinds of space. Uh, he does go out with Katrina every day, which is awesome. They're just the, the best of friends. It's kind of an adorable little relationship they have. Um, so he's being, we're building that right next to Katrina's area. Cause that's where they've been the whole time. So that's, that's the biggest project going on. Um, I mean, lots of enrichments. Uh, we just adopted in uh, two baby skunks back in June from uh, birds and animals. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> because they had an accidental litter of uh, baby skunks. So the manager Whoops. called me. Yeah, called me and said, do you have any room oh, for baby boy. skunks? And yeah, so we actually took in all five of their baby skunks at the time and helped to find homes for three of them because we just didn't have room for five we already have three of our own but we did keep two so it was fun designing them this little air that kind of became mine um i convinced Kristen to be able to, to take them in our guys our educational skunks getting a little older so i said hey it'd be great to have a few more for education down the road so they're kind of my little girls and just designing them this fun little like barbie dream house type <laughs> enclosure getting creative for animals like that um socializing them so that was a project of mine and then most recently, I've been doing a lot of training with the two servals that we have, Rufio and Hidari. Uh, we're getting ready for some fall fundraising events, and we're going to be doing hopefully some interaction with the public if they're up for it. And the servals have been doing some super cool behaviors, um, and they're really enjoying it. So the training that I've been doing has been bringing me back to my days of of uh, that those times. So I'm really enjoying that. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. And Kelly and I have, uh, we, we've been, well, I guess what we met around 2012 and we definitely trained quite a few different animals, uh, several cat together. I helped you with that when, when you were, when you were head, uh, taking lead on that one, we've trained birds, we've trained a little bit of everything. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's cool. Well, very neat. So, you know, with everything going on in the world and the craziness and you guys are a nonprofit, of course, and you know, COVID and dealing with all the fallout of that, you know, how have you guys been dealing with that? What have you been doing and what's changed to the, you know, daily operations and as far as tours and how are you, how are you guys coping with it? Uh, it hasn't been easy. I, I know it hasn't been easy for anybody for sure. I'm sure it hasn't been easy for you <laughs> at all. Um, but I think the biggest obstacle for us was the fact that we are a nonprofit 
And of course, you know, charitable giving is justifiably one of the first things to come out of people's budget when they have to feed their own family and pay their own bills. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, on top of that, this summer, of course, because, you know, I mean, schools were closed this year and even are in some ways still closed. Um, Libraries, anything where we do off property events, we do a lot of library shows, day camps in the summer would come out and bring their, their kids for tours. We lost I think the total number was like 51 jobs and over $7,000 in terms of that kind of income. And just in general, uh, our main source of income was we always do these wildlife shows out at one of the airboat places out near the coast for cruise ship excursions. No cruise ships, no income. So we've lost, I'd say, 60 to 70% of our normal income. Um, so that's been the biggest hurdle. And as a nonprofit, you know, you can only fundraise and essentially beg for money um, when you know people are hurting themselves and you want to help your own community as best you can. Um, So that's been the biggest thing, but we've done the best we can. I mean, like I said, it's been nice to be on property. Kristen and myself as the two directors are usually the ones traveling, doing the presentations and the shows and the events and the, all those. So it has been nice to be at home with our animals. Um, so we've taken the opportunity to do what we can on a budget, building, enrichment, training, um, doing all those things. But uh, we've done a lot of advertising our private tours. We've still been able to do that. We are a private facility. So we do small groups of four to six people. We are a 10 acre property. We can socially distance like crazy. Um, and just advertising that. So. It's definitely been tough for us. There were times where I know that we were very, very worried at the point where, you know, we, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, but so is everybody else. And, you know, we're just, we're just one of the many small businesses that did suffer through that. We got a small loan, which was nice, but you know, I think, think we're just getting by like everybody else. We got creative with, with what we had to with our budget. So in the end, as long as the animals are taken care of and they're eating and they've got what they need, you know, the rest can wait. So, so, um, how, how can people help? How can people donate? Um, what can people, if people are in the Orlando area, guys, if you're in central Florida and you're within a couple hour drive, you should check this place out, give them a call, make a reservation. It's worth it. It's a, it's a really neat up close and personal experience. And I can't stress that enough. So, um, you got to check this place out. It's the, to me, it's the perfect kind of Corona edition um, event. It's like the perfect thing to go do. You know, we've got uh, a lot of these out. You know, we've got an outdoor safari down here. It's a drive-through thing. This is kind of along those lines, even more intimate, in my opinion, better. Um, so, if you're within a couple hours drive, you got to get a hold of the Care Foundation. And Kelly, why don't you tell us how they can donate? Maybe through Amazon, things like that, or uh, how to set up a tour. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you are local or if you're willing to drive up to our place, like I said, we do private tours at all. It is all by appointment only. So we have social media pages as well as our website. Um, our website is a little outdated at the moment. We are working with a web designer to create a new and awesome and kind of interactive website. So that will be hopefully up in the coming months. So, but we use all the social media outlets as well that you can find the phone number and some of the information on our current tours highly recommended for, you know, for families, there's different, different tours we do. Um, we also host birthday parties on property, obviously at this time, you know, smaller birthday parties for the moment, but you can have your kid's birthday party or even an adult birthday party. If you like, we are actually about to host a very small wedding, um, November 1st for a couple that just wants to have that safari type wedding and have a couple of animals in the background to enjoy that atmosphere. So those kinds of things you can actually come and enjoy, uh, take a self, I'm sorry, a a guided tour um, around the property. Usually yours truly is one of the guides as well as some of our senior volunteers. Do a little bit of interaction with some of our education ambassadors, uh, maybe some feeding, uh, see some feeding of the big cats and just in general, get some cool educational information. Other ways to donate, we do have an Amazon wish list that is up if you can't seem to find it. You can message us on our social media and we'll help you find that. But we're always in need of dried, you know, goods, uh, foods, toys, um, other enrichment items. 
And then also, if you just generally want to donate in some way, there's uh, a donate button on any of our uh, social medias and websites as well. We also usually do a fundraiser event every year. We do what we call a big open house. We can't do that large annual fundraiser this year because of COVID has wrecked our fun. But coming up, we are doing a couple of series of events. Those are currently being advertised on all of our uh, outlets online. And those, you can come on property. We're selling pre-purchase tickets right now. That's when you can roam. Just talk to the volunteers. We also sell merchandise, t-shirts, actually paintings done by the animal artists themselves, as well as some other cool crafts uh, too. So check out all of those right now online because there's a couple of new events we're trying, including one for adults only. It's called Sunset Safari. It'll be a bit of a wine walk at night where you can come in, get some complimentary beer and wine, walk around with your tour guide and get a bit of a night tour. This will be the first time we're doing this. So it's kind of an experiment, but we're hoping it really goes off well. So any of those ways, otherwise just send us a message online or give a call if you want any more information about what we do. Nice. Awesome. So again, you can check out the Care Foundation on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, of course, you can donate through Amazon wish list. There's all kinds of ways you can help. Um, just come in and checking it out. You know, if you can make a $5 donation, $10 donation, it goes a long, long way. There are again, over 200 animals on property, they got to keep fed and in good health, and they do a hell of a job of it. So any any way you guys can help out, it's always greatly appreciated. And of course, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, Kelly Hain from the Care Foundation. Once again, find them on Facebook and Instagram, guys. Uh, Kelly, again, appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love it. Thanks. Awesome. In these crazy times we are living in right now, there is only one thing for certain. You got to eat. And if you got to eat, you better eat good. I know when I'm cooking and eating at home, I want to use only the highest quality ingredients. So I turn to my friend Ken Ko over at Southern Pride Gourmet Foods. You can check them out too at southernpridegourmetfoods.com. Now they have barbecue sauces, spice rubs, hot sauces, and jellies just to name a few. They also have some of the most delectable beef jerky you will ever taste. And I am a beef jerky fanatic. And don't get me started on just how good those candy jalapenos are. But you better buy them when he has them because he always sells out. That is how good they are. They also have the most authentic and pure olive oils, only made with the good stuff. Now, most olive oils that you get at the grocery store, they're mislabeled and misleading. They're a mixture of different oils. They're not the pure, good olive oil that Ken gets. Now, when you buy from Southern Gourmet Foods, you know you are getting a quality product from a quality guy. Ken knows what he's talking about, and he better. He's been doing it right and doing it right for over 50 years. And the best part? Southern Pride delivers nationwide. That's right, nationwide delivery. So do yourself a favor and make your way over to southernpridegourmetfoods.com. That's right, southernpridegourmetfoods.com, where everything they have is yummy for the tummy. Today on Speak the Dogcast Breed of the Week, it's the Great Dane. Now, the Great Dane is a giant, powerful working dog. However, they're also known as the gentle giants of the dog world. Now, these big guys do need lots of training and socialization from the start, and it's important to not only socialize them with other dogs, but people and kids as well. They do need a decent amount of mental stimulation, and daily walks are a must. Great Danes are very courageous and reliable, and of course, they're also trustworthy and dependable. Now, I did say these guys get big. Sometimes males can reach weights of over 175 pounds. Even though they're large, they can do well in an apartment setting if they are properly exercised. Now, it's also important to train a Great Dane not to lean, right? We wouldn't want 175 pounds of dog leaning on grandma and breaking a hip. Now, due to their large size, they are prone to some health issues such as hip dysplasia, heart disease, and mast cell tumors. They also do have a short life expectancy of only 7 to 9 years, but living to 10 or 12 is not unheard of. Now, the name can be a little deceiving. Great Danes are not Danish in origin, but in fact, German. And they have thought, uh, it's thought that they've been around for over 400 years and descended from mastiff-like dogs that were bred by German nobility to protect country estates and, of course, hunt wild boar. And I would not want to be a person or a wild boar on the receiving end of that. 
But Great Danes, uh, you know, the Great Danes we've come to know and love today, they were developed in the 1800s. And an interesting fact, in 1880, the term Great Dane was actually banned in Germany and replaced with the term Deutschdog, which means German Mastiff. Although, of course, in English, we still call them Great Danes today. And they've become great family pets, and with their goofy and loving nature, they've also found fame in pop culture representing dogs such as Marmaduke, Astro from the Jetsons, McGruff the Crime Dog, and of course, one of my favorites, Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Dogcast, it's our Q&A segment. Now today's Q&A is going to be puppy-centered, so all of our questions will be puppy training questions. First question, should I use pee pads to housebreak my puppy? Short answer, no. I always recommend living by the mantra of K-I-S-S, keep it simple stupid when we're training our dogs. Adding unnecessary tools or unnecessary variables can create confusion. The vast majority of owners, dog owners out there, do not need to be using pee pads. It's in very, very, very few instances that I've ever recommended using a pee pad. So again, I recommend not using pee pads as it will only create more confusion for the puppy. Next question. Should I crate train my puppy? Short answer, absolutely. Not only does the crate help with things like separation anxiety and housebreaking, but it also could become a necessary tool down the road. Let's say your dog needs surgery and you need a way to keep him off his feet. That crate will allow you to provide that boundary and introducing your puppy early and getting him comfortable to the crate can only make that easier. Next question. Should I take my puppy everywhere with me to get him used to people, dogs, and things? Short answer, yes and no. You do want to take your puppy out and expose them to the world around them, but at the same time, you don't want to do it too early. It is very important that your puppy has its proper vaccinations before you expose them to too many unknown things. There are quite a few different diseases that puppies can get, and it can be pretty serious stuff. So I highly recommend getting with your veterinarian and talking with them more in depth about what vaccinations are good for your puppy. Next question. At what age should I hire a professional trainer to work with? Short answer. There is never an age too early to start working with a professional. It is never too early to start training your puppy. That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, a special thank you to my good friend, Kelly Hayne from the Care Foundation for joining us on the guest spot. If you guys like what you hear, don't forget to click that subscribe button. And if you have any questions for the Q&A, Email us at questions at speakadogcast.com. In the meantime, have a wonderful week, and don't forget to get out and walk your dog.